0: This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah.
1: As we contemplate the future, I think the most significant event on the horizon is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Listen to the Apostle John's description of this event in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. He says, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Of course, we know that this is preemptive to the thousand year reign of Christ in the earth, the millennial kingdom. Now, I want you to notice the relationship of the kingdom, which is now and not yet, as we have learned to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Parousia—that Greek word, translated "coming," or "presence," or "arrival"—is found throughout the New Testament. Matthew twenty-four fourteen says, "In this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come." Now, you remember Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and then he rose again. The, 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 the foundation uh, of, of our faith in Christ is the resurrection from the dead. After spending about 40 days with his followers, he now gathers with them as recorded in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. They came together and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So we see this kingdom theme. He said, them. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After they heard Jesus say these things, they were, they were looking on and he was lifted up, the Bible says, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So they stood there gazing up into heaven And then two men stood by them in linen robes, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come, parousia, in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Even the Apostles' Creed of uh, the mid-2nd century, you know, creed comes from the Latin word credo, which simply means I believe. Relative to Jesus, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come, Perusia, to judge the living and the dead. So, really, what we're talking about here is kingdom come, the second coming of Christ. Jesus says, when you pray, pray, Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. So the kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. At the first coming, so many misunderstood him. They were anticipating a political leader, one who would fulfill all the prophecies uh, of a king reigning in the earth. But at his first coming, he came as the suffering servant. He was the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In the second coming, we see him as the conquering king, as is outlined in Revelation chapter 19. And he's a lion of the tribe of Judah. Interestingly, when Gabriel, the angel, makes announcements to Mary in Luke chapter one verse 31, He says, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and you'll bring forth a son and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So is it any wonder that many misunderstood this lowly, humble, meek? suffering servant, when he came. Isaiah prophesied about him in chapter 9, verse 1. He said, "A, a child will be born to us. A son will be given us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So the anticipation of the Messiah was to be a great leader who would throw off oppression. Indeed, he did those things, but his first coming was to satisfy a particular need that the human race had. Trust me, there is a second coming around the corner. So Peter picks up this theme, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 3. He says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. They will mock the truth, and they will follow their own desires. And they will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord really isn't being slow about his promise, as some think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You see, the second coming of Christ will will include judgment. And he's giving opportunity for those outside of his family to come back. It's amazing. So I want to contrast for a second those who love his appearing with unbelieving scoffers. It was Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 who said, There's a prize that awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, he says, but all who look eagerly forward and love his appearing, his parousia. So our perspective on the coming of the Lord really will determine our response. If we look for the sign of his coming, we're interested in indicators of when he may return versus a sign of the end because we don't believe in eternal life. We don't believe that that there's anything after this life. It will determine how we approach these matters. Now, I observed that when I was pastoring in Salt Lake City in the 80s and the 90s, at the close of the 20th century, speaking often on these prophetic passages, that we were close. We were close to the return of the Lord. And now, two decades into the 21st century, I can assure you, we're even closer. Now think with me for a second about the downward spiral of the scoffer. They start with some doubts which lead to skepticism and unchecked. It becomes criticism and ultimately can produce scoffing. We even see this take place among the academic community who start off with a doubt, maybe about the veracity and validity of the scriptures. And then become skeptical about many of the stories and passages in the Word of God. And then move on to become critics, even higher critics, now wanting to throw out the Word of God. And then ultimately becoming scoffers, even unbelievers. So the scoffer maybe is an atheist, maybe is an agnostic, or may have been a believer who now has turned. It's a person who is convinced... That a person or an idea is stupid or silly. That's what a scoffer is, and they are among us saying, Well, where is this promise of a coming? Jesus isn't coming again. Well, I believe it's important for us to consider what I believe is the most significant source found in Scripture, and that's Jesus' own words on this subject. And so we're going to go to Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to listen to a briefing offered by Christ regarding the last of the last days. This is Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This briefing by Jesus of his disciples, popularly referred to as the Olivet Discourse, is recorded in Luke chapter 23, Mark chapter 13, and Matthew chapter 24. Interestingly, in Mark 13, we're told it's just four disciples that ask Jesus these questions in private. It's... Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John. The four of them come and they ask a two-part question. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? It's interesting that the answer to the first question has already been fulfilled and, and it lends credibility to Jesus' comments about uh, or regarding the second question, which is still future. First question, tell us when will this happen? He says not one stone will be left upon another. The destruction of the temple is hereby predicted. And of course, it's already been predicted in Old Testament prophecy by Daniel and others. But the first century Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus, born in 37 or 38 AD, not dying until 100 AD, was an eyewitness to the events. Josephus not only comments on the siege itself in 70 AD, But prior in his writings, in the historical book, The Jewish War, uh, he talks about the magnificence of the Jewish temple. Listen, quote, The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes, or to look away, as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white. Well, after a four-month siege around the city uh, and the stubborn opposition of the Jewish uh, citizens of Jerusalem, General Titus invaded the city with the Roman armies. Uh, he, He... moved to to destroy the city dismantling buildings setting the city on fire in fact it was his intent not to burn the temple in its magnificence but to 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 save that that facility but uh it accidentally also caught on fire and it is speculated that roman soldiers pried the stones of the temple and surrounding the temple apart to extract the gold that had melted from the temple structure itself in the heat of the fire and trickled and then ran, ran into the cracks uh, between these, these, these stones. Pried apart they could extract the gold. Over one million people died in, in this siege and hundreds of thousands were taken into slavery and used in, in, in various Roman games. The second question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, is interesting because it, it, it introduces us to many of the preliminary signs of the times that many of us have heard so much about over the years. These are trends or indicators, but not the sign of the Lord's coming itself. There are 10 signs, I believe, clearly outlined in the Olivet Discourse. And they're either fulfilled or being fulfilled In our lifetimes let's pick it up at Matthew 24 verse 4 Jesus told them don't let anyone mislead you for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah they will deceive many and you will hear of wars and threats of wars but don't panic yes these things must take place but the end won't follow immediately nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom there will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world but all of this is only the first of the birth pains Uh, other versions have the beginning of sorrows with more to come so let's look at these ten signs of the times the first is counterfeit Christ leading many astray today in the world there are over 1600 pseudo Christian sects these are cults or marginalized groups who offer aberrant teachings uh, diminishing the person and work of Jesus Christ Uh, Substituting for God's word, uh, extra biblical writings, and uh, uh, providing a different methodology to be saved than the scriptures portray in the gospel. Uh, Second is wars and rumors of wars. Uh, This speaks of both ethnic uprisings and national conflicts. For uh, it is nations or the ethnos, ethnic groups, and also kingdoms, uh, actual nation states fighting one another. And we have seen the proliferation of wars, uh, particularly in the 20th century into the 21st century. Famine, Uh, hunger and malnutrition is the biggest health risk. Worldwide, Still today, it's the cause of approximately 45% of all deaths of children under the age of five in the world. Globally, food deprivation still here in 2020 claims a child's life every three seconds, if you can imagine it. Around the world, 821 people don't have enough food to live a active, healthy life. And one every, out of every nine people will, in the world will go to bed tonight hungry. Number four is earthquakes in various places. Uh, According to the National Earthquake Information Center, uh, they now locate about 20,000 measurable earthquakes each year or approximately 55 worldwide every day. Earthquakes greater than a 8.0 magnitude on the Richter scale are at a record high rate since 2004. And then the fifth sign is interesting because it's not recorded by Matthew, but it is recorded by Luke the physician in Luke 21:11. He says pestilences, uh, cholera, Ebola, influenza, meningitis, monkeypox, bird flu, swine flu, SARS, smallpox, yellow fever, H1N1, H1, or H2N2, COVID-19, etc. And who knows? what the next pandemic will be that we face in our world. But Jesus says in Luke 21, 9, don't be troubled. These things must take place, but the end isn't yet. And he goes on in verse 9, he says, Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you're my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. So the sixth sign or trend is the persecution of the followers of Christ. Now, many people want to relegate this to Jews, but remember the Jews rejected Christ. But I do believe the persecution of Jews as the people of God uh, is certainly in Jesus' mind here as he talks about the persecution of God's people. And, of course, that has taken place in the 20th century and is a great tragedy. But also the persecution of Christ's followers today, of Christians. We know that the ongoing attack on religious freedom via legal restrictions, including criminal penalties, up to death, is common in many nation states in the world today and then social hostility even here in America this is discrimination or mob violence against Christ's followers It only grows worse and worse number seven is the falling away or an apostasy uh, betrayal and hate number eight religious deception uh, similar To false Christ, but this is false prophets. This is extra biblical doctrine perpetrated in the church and in societies in general to keep people from coming to the knowledge of the truth. And then nine rampant sin and the diminishment of love. And finally, number ten, the gospel proclaimed to the nations, and then the end will come. Did you realize that 40 percent of the world's population today are in unreached? People groups. That's 3,120,000,000 people who have a minimal gospel witness in their society. They lack enough followers and resources to evangelize their own people, and thus groups from outside must come in. But let's go a step further. 25% today of the world's population are in frontier people groups where they have almost no chance of hearing the message of Christ from someone they know. And there are no known gospel movements. Zero. Half of these frontier people groups, a number totaling 975 million people, are in 31 predominant people groups in India, the Middle East, and China. And they are made up of two religious groups, Hinduism and Islam. The 12 different nations that uh, encompass these 31 groups are Afghanistan, Algeria, Bangladesh, China, India, Morocco, Yemen, Nigeria, Pakistan, Turkey, Uzbekistan, and Yemen. And they speak 15 different languages. This is a great missions challenge. So as we look at those 10 signs, the question is, what is the sign of his coming and of the end of the age that we're looking toward? Which of these 10 or is there another? I want you to notice that the end follows the preaching of the kingdom to every nation while it is being proclaimed today it will continue to be preached while you and i may engage in the effort of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth trust me god is involved in sharing the gospel and infusing it into societies that is the reason he postpones his coming the answer is interesting by jesus in matthew 24 verse 15. he says therefore when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. And Matthew adds the words, whoever reads, let him understand. Let me read it to you from the New Living Translation. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. The sacrilegious object that causes desecration, standing in the holy, in the holy place. And again, reader, pay attention this most specific old testament prophecy outlines the first coming of christ and his death the destruction of jerusalem in 70 a.d and the coming of the antichrist and the great tribulation and ultimately the end of the world as we know it it is called the abomination of or that causes desolation let me just share a couple facts with you regarding it. First of all, the Antichrist will desecrate the Jewish temple and stop the reinstituted animal sacrifice. Now, there have been events in history past where we have seen this, this type of desecration. But this is a future event that we're looking toward. Now, you realize the temple today it does not exist. There is no sacrifice taking place. There is No sacrifice to be stopped. The Jewish nation understands their consciousness uh, of sin. And they realize that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And they look forward to the day when their temple can be rebuilt, sacrifice can be reinstituted, and they once again can atone for sins. For they do not embrace the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They rejected Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Thus, the temple will be rebuilt, the sacrifice will be reinstituted, and the abomination marks the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. Maybe you haven't heard of it before, but we'll outline it briefly in a moment. So there's a prophetic timeline that's set in motion at the command to rebuild Jerusalem, which Daniel becomes aware of while he's in captivity in Babylon. And he is told that 77 year periods or 490 years would take uh, place in order to carry out God's purposes relative to this prophecy. The abomination of desolation is the beginning of the end. In Daniel chapter 9, beginning of verse 24, we have the outline of this prophecy that Jesus alludes to. Verse 24 says, A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city. Let me note that the 70 week prophecy wasn't made by Daniel, but it was instead given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to Mary and announced the birth of Christ. This is fantastic to realize that in answer to prayer, God sends Gabriel to reveal these events regarding the coming of Christ and the time of the end. Now we're gonna pick up in Daniel chapter nine, verse 25. Now listen and understand, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, The anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven, but after half this time he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings, and as a climax to all of his terrible deeds he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes Desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So we're told quickly that seventy sevens or seventy weeks are decreed. The Hebrew word is Shabuah, which literally means sevens, seventy sevens. They're determined for your people, Daniel, for your holy city. It was his people, the Jews, it was his city, Jerusalem, it was the temple in Jerusalem that he was praying about in Daniel chapter nine. And now Gabriel says, these weeks are decreed for you and your people and your city. Seven sets of seven, seven times seven is 49 years, plus 62 sets of seven. That's 434 years from the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Now there are four commands or four decrees given in the Old Testament relative to the Babylonian exile regarding the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and the rebuilding of Jerusalem itself. Three of the four decrees relate to the rebuilding of the temple. Only one relates to the building of the city. And that is the decree given by Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter two. Several references there where he states that Nehemiah can go back and rebuild the wall, rebuild the city. That took place on March 14th, 445 B.C. So there are 69 sevens. Remember seven sets of seven plus 62. So seven and 62, 69 sevens or a total of 483 years, a year, Biblically is 360 days. So we're talking about 173,880 days until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. If you go from the decree of Artaxerxes on March 14th, 445 BC, that, that number of days, it will take you to April 6, 32 AD. Of course, accounting for leap years and, and calendar modifications that took place uh, historically. It takes us to Palm Sunday. The day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a full of a colt, that he rode in uh, uh, making the sign of peace as a leader, as a king, and he accepted the title king for the first time. Up till then, he told his disciples, his followers, to not uh, try to uh, to elevate him to that, that type of position, but on this day, he accepted it. This is the, uh, the uncovering. This is the demonstration that the king has come. And Jesus accepts that worship that day. And then it tells us that the anointed one will be killed. Some versions say, but not for himself. Who was he killed for? He was killed for us. He paid a debt he didn't owe. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. And he took care of it for us. But of course, uh, in, in the translation I'm using, the New Living Translation, it says that it appeared that he accomplished nothing. Many people just thought it was a waste. Jesus' life was a waste, all this to go to the cross. But we know that it wasn't a waste. Thank God that, that he did. And then the ruler will arise and his people will destroy the city and the temple. That ruler, of course, uh, would have been a Roman ruler. And in 70, 70 AD, we know that Titus led the army of Rome to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And then it says, the ruler will make a treaty. Now, we know this treaty didn't take place immediately after the destruction of the temple. In fact, there has no been uh, not been a temple reconstruction since that time. There is still no temple in Jerusalem since 70 AD. But this ruler is going to make a treaty or a covenant with people for one final seven, for one seven that's a seven-year period. But after three and a half years or halfway through this treaty, this agreement, this covenant, he will end it or he will break it. This time frame is very specific. It's referred to in Revelation chapter 11, verses two and three as 42 months or as 1,260 days, all the same way of saying three and one half years. And so we know that a seven-year agreement will be enacted by this ruler and that he will break that agreement at the midway point of it and he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration in the temple. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 24, 21, there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no nor shall ever be. So what we realize is that the seven years of tribulation is broken into two parts, and the second half is really where the wrath of God is poured out in response to the desecration of the temple. Now, we don't often cite Daniel's 70-week prophecy, but I want you to know three people do. Daniel does via the revelation of the angel Gabriel, and Paul does in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Jesus does in the Olivet Discourse. And he says, it's the sign of the end. Listen to what Paul said in 51 or 52 AD, as he wrote his second letter to the Thessalonians, approximately two decades before the Gospels were even circulated. He says now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or even a letter assuming to be from us to the effect that that day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion come first and the man of lawlessness other versions have it the man of sin is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God this is the abomination of desolation either setting up his image and idol which is an abomination to the Jew Or setting up himself he goes on to say for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his parousia his coming The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Jesus will come to stop this leader, this ruler, this antichrist and to set up his millennial kingdom. And so Paul says in Romans 13, as we wrap this up, verse 11, he says, this is all the more urgent for you know how late it is, it is, and time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So let me just give uh, an admonition as to how we should respond. Some final instructions. Peter, who already told us that the Lord is postponing his coming because He wants people to come to the knowledge of the truth. He goes on to say in chapter three, verse 11, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives should you live? Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. And so dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. So let me just encourage you quickly. Number one, when you see these things begin to come to pass, know this, Jesus is coming. Lift up your heads, your redemption draws near. Second of all, don't be troubled. Those are the words of Jesus. He says these things must take place, but don't be troubled. And in another place Jesus says, don't be troubled, believe in God and believe also in me. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again, parousia, that you might be with me. Number three, live godly lives. Look forward and thus hurry it along. Hurry the second coming along by walking in fellowship with the Lord. Number four, live peaceful lives, pure and blameless in his sight. And finally, number five, be part of the Great Commission Church. Be part of the army taking the message to the ends of the earth, to the unreached people groups, to the frontier peoples who haven't heard and who have no known gospel movement among them. Because the Lord's patience is giving people time to repent. Well, as I close, I want to give you the opportunity today to give your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you already anticipate his coming. Maybe you already pray and share your faith in anticipation of that day, but possibly you haven't heard the message or up till now, you haven't yielded to it. The invitation is simple, repent, because the kingdom of God is here. It's repent, have a change of mind. When you do, God will change your heart and then you'll be able to change your actions. But without that taking place, without that repentance, Trust me, it will not take place in your life or mine. Repent and believe the good news. Have a change of mind about the things that I've shared with you today and open up and receive Jesus. Let me pray with you today. Pray this simple prayer with me. Pray, Heavenly Father, I repent right now. Change my mind and change my heart. I believe and receive Jesus Christ. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he was put in the tomb but I believe he rose from the dead. I confess and believe that Jesus is Lord and he's alive today. And Jesus, I believe you're coming again. So begin to teach me. I wanna walk with you. I wanna live this life of faith. I believe you are God in flesh, dwelling among men. And I look forward to, with anticipation, your second coming. Let me live, not in fear, but in great anticipation and in faith as we await for your coming, Lord. We pray today in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you.
0: For those of you that said yes to Jesus for the very first time, we wanna say welcome to the family of God, and we'd love to help you get connected either here at Courageous Church or wherever you're watching from. Or maybe today you recommitted your life to Christ Day or asked for the Holy Spirit to fill you for the first time. Either way, we'd love to help serve you. And here's how. You can go to courageouschurch.com to fill out a digital connect card. This will help our team know how to best follow up with you and pray for you in the days ahead. We also want to come alongside you as you begin your new faith journey by sending you a Bible and helping you take some next steps. For those of you here in the Salt Lake Valley, we're currently gathering at 9550 South State Street in Sandy. It's the place where we do our prayer nights on Tuesdays at 730 as well. And we'd love for you to come out and join us here. As always, if Courageous Church is your home church, we want to remind you to honor God with your giving. Your generosity allows us and enables us to reach many with the hope, healing, courage, and life of Jesus. It allows us to advance His good news for the people of Salt Lake City, the Mountain West, and beyond. And if you want to be a part of what God is doing with this church to make a difference, you can use one of the links that we've posted right there in the comment section or just head on over to CourageousChurch.com slash giving to give online. Church, we love you. The future is bright and you are God's best. So be strong and courageous. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.